Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 992. To begin today's show, Eric Longenhagen invites ESPN's Jeff Passan to the program. Last week, Jeff wrote about a court case on the Dominican Republic that could change baseball in big ways after a pair of teenagers sued the Los Angeles Angels, alleging that they reneged on verbal agreements to sign them. Eric and Jeff discuss the details of the story and the rampant flaws in the current system, including teams blatantly overpromising more deals than they know they'll be able to deliver. We also hear about how this could affect deals going forward, the idea of the international draft, and how the age differences with these foreign players loom over the entire situation. And to me, Eric, the most damning part of this entire thing is the language that you and I are using when we talk about it. Think about how we're saying we know a team that's going to do this in 2025 and 2026. You're talking about 14. I'm well aware of the changes that can happen in a 14-year-old. Because six months ago, I had a 14-year-old who I was an inch or two taller than. And now he's 5'11", looking down at me, and probably, if I'm being honest, could beat me up. I've seen it myself. And and I've seen his growth as a pitcher too. Just the, the difference in size, the difference in velocity, and how quickly it can happen. And and we have to acknowledge that when we look at the Latin American market, like it's hard enough to draft the rule four draft as is, right? right. It's hard enough to, in the June draft to project what a majority 18, 19, 20, 21, even 22 in some cases year old player is going to look like and if he's going to be a big leaguer. The onus on scouts in the Dominican Republic right now and in Venezuela is to try and do that for 12 and 13 and 14 year olds. We also get Jeff's thoughts on the potentially playoff bound Seattle Mariners, minor league unionization, and the new rule changes. After that, Ben Clemens welcomes Michael Bauman to the podcast and to Fangraphs.com. Our newest full-time writer, Michael is here to tell you why college baseball is so much fun and worth your time. Ben and Michael discuss things like the first time they met virtually, how different and a little bit intimidating it is to write for Fangraphs readership, and a side rant about the evils of golf before diving deep on D-back's first baseman Christian Walker. Ben wrote on Walker recently, and his impressive season has gone under the radar a bit in the desert. I think Walker's going to be good going forward. I think the Diamondbacks will be good going forward. It's kind of strange to say that because you wouldn't think he'd be that good. He hits the ball really hard, but that's that's kind of his one skill. I guess he's the best. Well, it's a good skill to have. Yeah, as it turns out, it's a very good skill to have. And it's a lot easier to... He also has really good idea of what to do at the plate. Mm -hmm. I was surprised by that. I had never known that. But if you look at his kind of historical swing rates, he's pretty good at swinging a lot at pitches over the heart of the plate, and he's pretty good at not chasing. And you don't notice it because he misses a lot and still Mm -hmm. strikes out a ton. But, you know, he's making good swing decisions. It's just that he swings so hard that when he hits it, it goes a long way, but he also misses a lot. Finally, Michael claims his podcast territory by throwing down the gauntlet. And I'll reiterate my invitation to Jeff Passan and Eric Longenhagen to to meet me in the octagon. Well, I think it would be a tag team match at that point. Yeah. I feel like we'd have the odds in that. They're both kind of skinny guys. They're little. Like, yeah. I think Eric's in better shape. Oh, Eric is like me beating up Eric is contingent on me catching Eric, which is not <laughs> a given even in a, even in a ring. I was going to say that's why we need the octagon. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the best place for you to get your Fangraphs merch, 
but you can pick up an ad-free membership, good for yourself or for a friend. It is through your support that we can do things like hire more talented writers. We have not only brought on Michael Bauman, but we have announced our newest part-time contributors at the site this week as well. Thank you for your help in platforming and giving a home to these latest voices in baseball research and everything else we do here at Fangraphs. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hello again, Fangraphs Audio listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you from his kitchen island at the Fangraphs Southwest Desert Vista compound in Tempe, Arizona, where the weather has started to turn a corner, especially at night. It's like pleasant to be here again. And I'm joined by one of the most important writers in our industry and the bane of the FCC. It's ESPN's Jeff Passon. <laughs> Jeff, how's it going? Hey, Eric. F*** you. <laughs> <laughs> we, Jeff, were, we were just i'm sorry we were just talking before we we started this about how i accidentally dropped an f-bomb uh <laughs> earlier today on the radio and thankfully the dump button exists i did not think we were on air i can avoid working blue when i want to it's two decades worth of training but uh with a setup like that how could i not I'm surprised that it's a thing that hasn't happened to me more often, both because I am very free with my profanity just day to day. Totally. And because I am not from like, I'm a little bit younger than you and I have just podcasted more than I have been on the radio for all the radio hits I've done over the course of, you know, 16 years in baseball or whatever. Podcasting just is my default setting and theoretically should be free to let it fly, but it's nice to know even a seasoned veteran as yourself can can have a slip up. Honestly, it's the it's the first time I've ever cursed on live radio. And again, I did not think I was on air. I know better than that. I have I have uh, developed self discipline in that respect throughout the years, and and mainly it's just a defense mechanism against getting fired. Like I'm really trying not to get fired, and I don't think that anyone gets fired anymore for accidentally letting a curse word slip, but uh, you got to be careful. I've not done it on TV yet, knocking the wooden desk right there, because, boy, that would be an ignominious way to go out. Yeah, I'm just picturing the memes with, like, Mickey Mouse and a guillotine and you and... <laughs> Something it would be from even the, better if it were Minnie who is uh, who is <laughs> wielding the sword. Yeah, she's got a black executioner's hood or there's like <laughs> the Robin Hood. You know the old animated Robin Hood where like the fox that plays Robin Hood, people have like sexual urges toward – there's probably some – stuff in there that doesn't hold up anyway how are you what's what's going on with in your life right now and how is the stretch run of the baseball season washing over you i'm really enjoying it i'm enjoying watching games not that there's any moment in the season when i don't but september just has a different feel it's more meaningful and i understand every single of the 162 games that is played matters just the same but there's extra urgency right now and you know the 140 or so that have been played already uh, that's in the books you got 20 something games left to go out and get into the playoffs to secure seating position to try and figure out where you're going to be well no not figure out where you're going to be drafting because there's a lottery now but get yourself in position for a good draft pick and the stakes are just higher right now and what we love about sports beyond the the rush of 
a transaction in the offseason or a trade at the deadline. I would like to believe more than anything is what those build toward, which is these next three weeks. If you're looking at the teams in the postseason mix and just the way guys are playing, is there any one, especially if some of these the young players and teams who maybe haven't been there before, who you think are especially suited for the heat of the spotlight to come? I am not going to say that the Seattle Mariners are going to advance if they make the playoffs, which is not a certain thing at this point because weirder things have happened to that organization. But if I'm looking at a team that's going to have some success, it almost certainly is going to have a really good and deep bullpen if it doesn't have the reservoir of talent in other areas. And that was my Los Angeles Dodgers caveat right there. And when it comes to having a bullpen and having one guy who I think is ready for the spotlight, it's the Mariners with Seawald and Munoz and Swanson and Festa and Murphy and Brash. I mean, guy after guy after guy, they can just march in. And on on top of that, they've got Luis Castillo. And let's not forget Diego Castillo in the bullpen. But they've got Luis Castillo, Robbie Ray, and I don't even know who the third starter is. Is it George Kirby? Is it Logan Gilbert? I think the answer, a good answer is yes. Because I'd be happy with either of those guys going out there to lock down a series for me. And they are all going to pitch this postseason, one would think. But Julio Rodriguez, he's, he's not the center of my universe right now. But God, I just love watching him play. Just some magnetism about him, this energy that he exudes. And he's an incredible baseball player, too, at 21 years old. Seeing what he's going to be. In the future, over the next decade plus, is going to be one of my great joys as a fan of the sport. Alex Reyes isn't close to coming back, is he? He had shoulder surgery. Okay, I, yeah, I'm looking. The other team that has the ability to shorten a game and like shift pieces around such that their bullpen looks like a nasty, like flame throwing Hydra type is St. Louis to me with Helsley, Gallegos, Hicks, Palante, multiple innings, Jojo Romero, multiple innings, etc. But yeah, the Mariners, I agree, have a vibe. All right, let's get into it. Over the last week or so at ESPN.com, you've been part of several very important articles, uh, as is typically the case. There were a couple I, I wanted to touch on while I had you here. One of them is minor league unionization. One of them is rule changes, but let's start with what I think maybe has the most legs and might have like serious repercussions for some teams and maybe the sport overall. And that's that two uh, current minor leaguers, one with the Mets, Willie Fanyas and uh, Kyderson Pavone, who's with the Rangers. They are both suing the Los Angeles Angels, alleging that the Angels pulled out of verbal agreements before they, they signed. Can you... And folks, like, there's a link to this story in the post for this podcast. Everyone should go read Jeff's reporting on it. But for, uh, you know, can you give us the Reader's Digest version of, of the story, Jeff? This is a story, Eric, that I've been working on for a while now. And it's one of those that, despite the presence of a lawsuit down in the Dominican Republic from Fanyas and Pavon, that I didn't write about upon the filing of the suit. And... One of the reasons that I didn't write about it was because I wasn't 100% certain that this legal action was going to have any legs. And as a reporter, 
one of the things that you're taught is anytime there are court filings, that's fair game. I try and have a little bit higher standard than that because anyone can file a lawsuit. Anyone can take on a lawyer. The big difference is what does the judge think about it? And in this case, we are now on the fourth hearing of this lawsuit and the fifth, which is scheduled for November 30th, is going to include witness testimony. There are a number of things in this story that are alarming, that are disturbing, and that really illustrate just how screwed up baseball is in the business of baseball, particularly in the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, all of Latin America, really. The first thing that really caught my eye was the video. Uh, there was a video taken of Caterson Pavon when he went to uh, a training field by an Angels employee. And it was the day he was told, and this is translated from Spanish to English, quote, you are signed. Now, this was about a year before the actual signing date for what we used to call July 2nd players. Now we'll just say international amateur free agents. A full year before, which is not uncommon, almost every player who's worth a damn agrees to a contract a year, quite often two, occasionally three, and even sometimes four. And yes, that means deals with 12-year-olds are being done. And these deals are verbal agreements that more and more in recent years have been broken. Now, this really accelerated when baseball teams knew after the 2016 collective bargaining agreement that they were going to have a finite amount of money to spend for international free agents every year. You saw promises to players going earlier and earlier, the players who are 13 years old and true standouts, you know, getting multiple millions of dollars promised to them with the idea that by the time they turn 16, when they can legally sign, that they will be tethered to that club. But in Fanyas's case and in Pavone's case, what happened is Billy Epler, the general manager for the Los Angeles Angels, got fired. And Perry Manassian came in and hired a new international scouting director, Brian Parker. And they looked at the players who were under agreement with the Angels beforehand. These are the allegations that are in the lawsuit. They looked at those players. They believed that they could sign better ones who were still out there with the money that they had. And they reneged on those deals. That left Willie Fonius and Caterson Pavone without teams after believing in Fonius's case for two years and in Pavone's case for a year that they were going to be with the Angels. And it's a pretty harrowing place to be. It's, it's a pretty discomforting situation. If in Pavone's case, he moved from Venezuela to the Dominican Republic specifically to train to be a baseball player for this moment, and all of a sudden his future is thrown into flux by one decision that is non-binding, that everyone understands could happen, but nobody feels particularly good about. And the basis of the lawsuit, Eric, is that Dominican law lends far more credence to verbal contracts than U.S. law does. And the belief among Pavone and Fanius's attorneys is that a judge is going to see all of the facts and say that the Angels breached a verbal contract and thus the players are due damages for that. Now, the consequences of this would be exceptional because all of a sudden, 
if in the Dominican Republic, verbal agreements with players are looked at like they are essentially binding, you're going to see a whole lot less verbal agreements and teams are going to be a lot more reticent, I think, to give out what they would believe at that point is guaranteed money to a guy because if it can hold up in a court of law, then precedent is precedent, right? How important then is that video to this case and what kind of might discovery for these like has the discovery phase for this case included text messages and other forms of evidence basically that might tether the player to the team because there are there are already teams Jeff and I'm sure that you know this that for 2025 2026 like I know of teams who already have overcommitted yep to entire signing classes two and three years into our future who have already have verbal agreements with players that they have no choice but to go back on at some point in the next couple of years. Because even if you have a $4 million signing pool and you trade for half that amount uh, mm -hmm. in pool space and you have you know $6 million or you start with $5 million and you end up with $7.5 million, whatever it is – if you've committed $10 million to players, which I know a couple of teams who a couple of years out from now have already done that, you have to like, you've baked into your strategy already that you are going to renege on a couple agreements because a year of development, hell, six months of physical development for yep. a 14 year old, a 15 year old is such a huge deal. And yeah, it does happen all the time where teams have a verbal agreement with someone and then they may not whack their agreement altogether. But they may reduce it. They may yep. alter it in some way, you know, to try to and, – and teams know that they have leverage over these players. This has happened a lot. You mentioned it happened a lot when the CBA changed in 2016 and I want to get into, into that a little bit as well. But it really happened with the most frequency and very significantly – after the pandemic pushed the signing date an yes. extra six months. Yes. And it was mandated at that stage by MLB that you could not trade – for pool space during that phase. So like, for instance, there's a team that had a $2 million agreement with a player. They had banked on trading for pool space to fit their mm -hmm. entire class into their pool. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, one of the other players who they had like a mid six-figure agreement with during that six-month window of delay from July, what would have been July 2, 2020 to what became January of 2021, one of their players blew up. Yeah. And everyone who had late market money, which is only ever a handful of teams, which is part mm -hmm. of the problem, right? Again, like this is such a meandering, complex melange of, of variables that are going on here. But like one of these players exploded and now all of a sudden other teams wanted to pay more for that player. And so the team had to cut from their bonus pool in order to keep the player that was blowing up. And they decided to whack their agreement with this like $2 million player who ended up signing for like 700K with another team. Yep. And so, yeah, like some of the variables that have caused these things to occur over the last couple of years are due to impropriety on the parts of the teams and the uh -huh. individuals who are in charge of the international dealings for those teams. Some of it is self-inflicted by Major League Baseball uh -huh. because if we had the old system, like we went from a system where Yohan Moncada got $31 million and the Red Sox paid another $31 million in tax to sign him, like in a free market, basically, the Red Sox said, we will give Yohan Moncada. We think he's worth $63 million. Yep. And then a couple of years later, Shohei Otani got $3 million. <laughs> 
because of changes to the CBA, okay? And so, like, if it weren't for the finite bonus pools, teams would not feel – this would not be a quote-unquote strategy yes. that they are employing to have the most, you know, efficient class that they that they could. It's, it's not a zero-sum game at that point. Right now, it is. Right. And, and to me, Eric, the most damning part – of this entire thing is the language that you and I are using when we talk about it. Think about how we're saying we know a team that's going to do this in 2025 and 2026. You're talking about four. I'm well aware of the changes that can happen in a 14-year-old because six months ago, I had a 14-year-old who I was an inch or two taller than. And now he's 5'11", looking down at me, and probably, if I'm being honest, could beat me up. I've seen it myself, and and I've seen his growth as a pitcher too. Just the the difference in size, the difference in velocity, and how quickly it can happen. And and we have to acknowledge that when we look at the Latin American market, like it's hard enough to draft the Rule Four draft as is, right? It's right. hard enough to, in the June draft to project what a majority 18, 19, 20, 21, even 22 in some cases year old player is going to look like and if he's going to be a big leaguer. The onus on scouts in the Dominican Republic right now and in Venezuela is to try and do that for 12 and 13 and 14 year olds. It's a damn near impossible task. And the fact that as many big bonus players end up as good as they are in the big leagues as they do is a testament to how damn good the scouting actually is down there. It's incredible the eyes that some of the the people who are in the DR doing the majority of the scouting have. But the fact that we have to play these games where, listen, as a reporter, it's a game that I have to play to be fair because in order to run with a story like this, You need a mountain of evidence. You need receipts. You need to be careful because saying that an organization or even alleging that an organization did something as improper as this, we've seen improprieties happen in the past in Latin America, and John Coppolella is banned from baseball because of it. So if he is banned from baseball for for packaging and, and, you know, a a litany of other things. And other stuff. But that was... That was the the reason that MLB gave. Then certainly teams recognize that doing nefarious things in Latin America has a chance to really blow back on you. And so alleging that in a, in a story, you know, it takes a lot of evidence. At the same time, you, me, and everyone else in the industry recognizes that this is a real problem. Like there are a lot of problems in Latin America right now, whether it is the reneging on deals, whether it's the packaging of players, whether it's the kickbacks to team employees, which is a very realistic thing. Right. It's no it's no accident that so many of them know how much money you have, like what the threshold for declaring uh, cash absolutely. through customs is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the saddest part to me is that more and more over time, Latin American players have become a proportionately larger portion of the workforce in baseball on the field. More than half of minor league players right now are from Latin America. More than a quarter 
of players in the big leagues now are from Latin America. And one would think that when you have that many people coming into your industry, that you would want the system to be as rock solid and airtight as possible. And right now, it's about as loose as you can get. What is your sense of what Major League Baseball as a business entity thinks of this story? Is there a chance that they are fine with some of the impropriety being exposed because it helps them curry favor to transition to a draft, which we still don't seem to have real framework for even after it was the last sticking point during the last CBA negotiations? You know, on one hand, I think that it's welcome from the league. On the other, I think it illustrates the the general fecklessness of their policy to this point. You know, Major League Baseball has essentially raised its hands and shrugged its shoulders when it comes to early deals. They just say that's the cost of doing business. And, and the moral implications there are, you know, on one hand, I don't like the idea of it because I, I think it can be exploitative. On the other hand, I look at other industries, and when you have prodigies in other industries, they're able to go out and make money at any age. When you look at soccer academies from major clubs in Europe, they bring kids in as young as nine years old. I, I wish, I really wish there were a better educational component so that these kids who are dropping out of school at 9, 10, 11, 12 years old had a chance because maybe the greatest tragedy of all, Eric, when it comes to Major League Baseball's Latin America policy is that if you don't make it, you're just going back home with no discernible skills. Right. And look, maybe you're smart. Maybe you can get back into the education system and carve out a nice career. Maybe you can find a trade. Maybe you start an academy. You know, all of these things are realistic possibilities, but there are, what, seven, eight hundred kids a year who are signing, probably a little bit more when you go beyond just the, the J2 class itself. And you look at some of the older players who are joining organizations, not on the actual signing date itself, but an equal, if not greater number than that every year is washing out. And that's sending hundreds, if not more, at that point, either kids or grown men back to a place where a system that encouraged them, encouraged them, not specifically saying you should do this, but because of the incentives, encouraged them to drop out of school at a young age and focus on baseball, now has left them with what? Yeah. And some of the daylight between what happens with European soccer academies and what goes on in our industry is power dynamic between the wealth of the country that we live in uh -huh. and what is often like abject poverty in Latin America. I know, you know, you hear stories about players who are living in very difficult conditions, who are illiterate, who, you know, like it's not as though the infrastructure of some parts of these Latin American countries like really allow for any kind of opportunity outside of baseball, as is the case in, you know, our country, variables that have nothing to do with a person's, you know, quote unquote will or whatever often dictate the outcome of people's lives like it's just true everywhere same as it is yep here it's just that you know the the variables you're working with are are dialed down to Dominican Republic levels in in some circumstances so it's hard the draft in a sense removes agency 
from these players and their trainers and families to some extent. You know, if you want to play for the Dodgers because you like their player development, if you want to play for the Yankees because that's meaningful to you, whatever the case may be, that's a thing that becomes moot in the event that a draft is, is put in place. And you know, it's fascinating to see what will happen because we do know some of these agreements that teams have, you know, multiple years out. A bunch of the players who are on the international tab of like the board at our site right now, they ordinarily would have signed two and a half months ago uh, and are waiting to sign until January. I've got, and the, the six month push to the signing day from the pandemic has had repercussions that I don't think we've totally felt yet. And some teams have goozled themselves by committing money so early. Like there are certain players who would have been age eligible. So like there are players who would have just been eligible to sign the day they turn 17, the back half of this calendar year and are technically eligible to sign in like the prior signing class now. Yep. But that wasn't the case. You know, like it's the same as when the day of the draft move, all of a sudden there were sophomore eligible college players. Right because the draft was pushed back. And so if the rule still says within 45 days of the draft, if you turn 21, you're eligible. Well, now that the draft date has been pushed back a month and a half, we have an extra month and a half worth of birth dates to lump into the draft. Well, the same is true of the international class, but because there wasn't really money to go around because everyone's agreeing to early deals, even though you're age eligible, in November of 2022, you have to wait until January of 2023 to sign because you agreed to sign with, you know, the Mariners or whatever. So uh-huh. it's fascinating. And it's just one of those, the world turned upside down. <laughs> you, you brought up so many good points. I want to focus on two things. One, you were talking about the money at the beginning. It's really important to note the way that the money flows in the Dominican Republic, right? So first, there's the element of, okay, you're with your trainer at a young age. And quite often, the trainer will not foist you on a larger trainer, but you'll go to another academy and that original trainer gets a cut. And then the Buscon who's got the bigger academy is going to take a larger percent. And sometimes there's an agent involved. And when it's all said and done, you know, the kids are getting 50% of their bonus, something like that. Beyond that, though, let's say you are a player who at 14 years old has a verbal agreement in place with the club for $2 million. What you can do at that point is leverage that $2 million into a loan. And there are enough people down in the Dominican Republic willing to give that money away that all of a sudden you don't have to wait until you're 16 in order to lift your family out of poverty potentially, to to get... Uh, your mom a house, to get your dad a car, to do the sorts of things that when you come into wealth, people do. The problem is that if the team reneges on your agreement, you're in a really bad financial situation. And there have been kids down in the DR who have found themselves there before. And it it is the saddest of sad stories. Also sad to me is the idea that in the U.S., If you draft a 17-year-old, you're seen as doing something that progressive teams do, right? Because models, uh, you know, the, the Cleveland model, the Milwaukee model, you know, a lot of really good, successful organizations place a pretty heavy weighted emphasis on age. And when someone who's 17 and young for his class pops in the draft, he gets extra weight. If you're 17 in the DR, you're yesterday's news. 
And there is just such an opportunity there, I think, for clubs that don't have this age bias against Dominican and Venezuelan and other Latin American players to strike there. Did you see Luis Ortiz in his debut? The the Pirates Luis Ortiz, not the Central California Luis Ortiz? Yes, I did. Sitting 99 has, I think he was at Bradenton last year. So he was way down in the organization. Luis Ortiz did not sign until he was 19 years old. And the story, is, as far as I've been told, is he was one of, like, there's a bevy of pitchers down in the DR who don't sign and end up throwing at showcases for some of the top kids who are going to be signing in future classes. And apparently, Luis Ortiz was so good at a showcase that the Pirates saw him and said, forget the fact that you're 19, your stuff is electric. See, I was going to say something else there, but I knew the FCC was listening. Your stuff is electric (laughs) and you're going to, you know, you have a chance to be something. And lo and behold, here he is a couple of years later, a big leaguer and maybe just maybe a piece of the Pirates rotation going forward. And the industry's willingness to just toss out players down in Latin America once they've reached an age where if they were American, it it would be completely normal for them to be part of the entry system. I don't know if it's a bias. I don't know if it's an inefficiency. I don't know. Maybe I'm just taking Luis Ortiz's case and extrapolating it out unfairly because if you're one of those guys who did slip through the cracks, you're an outlier, not part of a, a bigger picture, a bigger class of players who should be looked at. But damn, I, I've heard enough cases throughout the years of guys who didn't sign at 16 and turned out to be big league ball players that I think the biases that are in place with clubs right now are unfortunate and speak to the differences between American, Canadian, Puerto Rican, and international players. So what you're describing is, I think, a systemic phenomena that has multiple variables impacting these outcomes. So I wrote a little bit about it, one of them, a couple months ago. And you're right, like, there are very few Latin American starting pitchers in Major League Baseball. At one point during the year, of the guys who had enough starts to qualify, yep. there were only 11 Latin American starters. Yeah, that's because that's that's because if you're Dominican and you show any sign of wildness or not being able to go deep into games, you get thrown in the bullpen. Right. And some of it is is 40-man timeline dynamics because – by the time you, as a Latin American signee, like your timeline to be put on the 40 man is the same as a high school player. Yep. And sometimes there are two years in age gap between when you have to, you know, be put on the 40 man versus the high school player who was drafted in the same year. Yep. And then obviously there's a huge gap in age between when the college pitchers have to go on to the 40 man and when the Latin American pitchers do. We are selecting like the players who are more likely to be put on the 40 man signed out of Latin America are the best ones. If you feel the need to protect someone from the rule five draft at age 19, sometimes 20, it's going to be the best guy or two. No question. And then often you are not. So like a draft eligible sophomore 
college player is 20 when he's drafted and then has three years of development before you have to decide whether or not to put him on the 40 man. A 17 year old, 16, 17 year old Latin American player has to be put on the 40 man or not at age 20. And again, you're selecting for the best guy. And often they are just not ready to be a big league starting pitcher. And so what happens is their option years start to bleed away. Uh And you end up with a guy who has one option year left. And at that point, you are scared and cut bait and just put him in the bullpen because you don't want an optionless reliever on your everyday roster who's only 21. You have no flexibility. He's still raw at that stage. And so some teams are starting to target pitchers specifically when they are older. The cement is a little more dry on them physically, developmentally. The timeline for their 40-man is a little bit more realistic in terms of developing them as starters. Houston is one of the teams that has been doing this for a while. Successfully. Of the 11 Latin American starters, they have four. Yeah. Urquidy, Garcia, Javier, and Framber Valdez. So I do think, you know, you see in some of the other cases like Helcris Oliveres with the Rockies, Francisco Morales of the Phillies. These are guys who were big time teenage arms sitting mid upper 90s, huge slider, but no command. Both of them have had option years bleeding away for two years. Helcris Oliveras hasn't like even really thrown very much this year. He was on the complex level roster down here in Arizona for the longest time as like a rehabber and just stopped throwing in the middle of July. Like no idea what's going on there. And yeah, like it is, it's a systemic issue that stems from Helcris Oliveras and Steven Hadger. Steven Hadger was a, a sophomore, young for the class, lefty from the University of Michigan. The two, those two guys were literally born like a day apart, I think. And Steven Hadger's got years to develop in the minors and polish his craft to be a big league starter. Whereas like Helcris Oliveras is on the roster bubble and he's not an organization that's particularly good at developing pitchers. And that's part of it too. But it is, I think, part of the reason that we have so few Latin American starters is that the roster timeline is just super unfavorable to them. And yeah, some of it stems from this front end weird bias against guys who have kind of aged out and been passed over. And it happens all over. You know, if you've been passed over in the rule five, Uh you are looked at in the pro scouting community as like, well, what's wrong with you? You're that vegetable that's been in the fridge for like a little too long. Like, I don't know if I want to use this or not anymore. I'm just more apt to take the L on the eggplant. Like, I better cook you if I'm going to eat you. Right. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, like, it's very interesting, but I do think that there are many parts of that dynamic that have that have caused it to be true. And I think you will start to see teams move away from that. And it's interesting to to think about what is actually beneficial to the players in that scenario. Because if you're going to tell me, all right, you can get a front end payday at 16, 17, like Francisco Morales did with the Phillies, yep. or we can bet that you're going to be good. that is a blast from the past right there. Right. So it's a hard decision to make. All right. So how do you think that this intersects with minor league unionization? (laughs) Do you think – I mean, you mentioned before that a huge part of the minor league player population is Latin American. Mm -hmm. And some of that is because you can have multiple DSL rosters, multiple complex level rosters, and the the affiliate part of it has been shaved down. Do you think that will continue, that we will lose minor league roster spots as a result of unionization? I don't think that happens immediately. And we had a Q&A about this on ESPN.com. 
uh, that tries to answer these sorts of questions. I think there are a few things conspiring against the near-term shrinking of the minor leagues. Now, listen, we all understand that if MLB owners are going to be spending four plus million dollars extra on minor league salaries every year, if the domestic reserve list stays at 180 players and the salaries go up somewhere into the neighborhood of $36,000 a year, so essentially tripling what they are right now. We all understand that if that's the case, owners are going to want to either recoup that money through new revenue streams or more likely try and either cut jobs at the minor league level or reduce spending at the big league level. Is that necessary? No, but it's probably a reality. I think what the minor league union is going to do in part is help stave that off as much as possible. Because let's remember, I'll be honest, I did not know what the domestic reserve list was before I first heard about it during CBA talks this winter when Major League Baseball was asking for the ability to change the list. And the MLB Players Association said, no, we're not going to grant you that. And now because it was a permissive item in those negotiations, it is not in their bailiwick necessarily, but will be in all likelihood a mandatory item in the discussions between the minor league players union and major league baseball as they begin talks on a new collective bargaining agreement there. And what the domestic reserve list is, is the number that that you are allowed as a club to roster in the United States. So that is your four affiliated teams and your Arizona or Florida Complex League team. Now, there are ways around this. You know, there's the 60-day injured list, which if you're on that, you're not on the domestic reserve list. And some teams use that a little more liberally than others. And there may be discussions on how many players you can keep on the 60-day IL at any particular time. But you can be damn sure that the minor league union is not going to willingly give up jobs. Like the the reason that they exist is to do the best that they absolutely can for player welfare. And player welfare is salary, player welfare is working conditions, but player welfare above all else might just be raw jobs, right? Like the, the number of spots that a team is allowed to have. You know, the idea of minor league baseball shrinking even more than it has already seems just positively counterintuitive to me. The more places baseball is played at a high level, the likelier you are to compel people to watch the major league product. And if you turn into a strictly developmental minor league system, which is we're pretty close to it already, but I mean, if you have a double A team, a triple A team, and everyone else is at the complex in Arizona or Florida in the DR, then it's clear that the minor leagues are seen less as 120 Pied Pipers for the wonderment of baseball and more as truly like a farm system where you're looking to grow and develop. And that is clearly the only, not the top, but the only priority. Yeah, I... I tend to agree with you. It's funny, like minor league baseball has real problems as its own cultural thing, even independent of the players who are there. You know, 
for all of the discussion around, you know, some of it is, it's not like this chaste, immaculate thing. Like minor league baseball is full of employees who are taken advantage of and underpaid. The people who work there, like for the affiliates. Yeah. And every last inch of the ballpark is, you know, for sale for advertisers and this and that. But even as a, a selfish ass who would love for half of the minor league player population to just be 45 minutes away from my front door all the time. That's yeah, not a I thing mean, I want to see. I, like I, you know what though? Like from the club side, if you're just talking in the big league front office, you can understand why they'd want that. It's short term thinking and, and major league baseball, one of its, you know, one of its great flaws throughout the years has been too much short term thinking. Like it, it would be for me a a very convenient thing to do that would have a disastrous effect on the sport a decade down the road. I mean, listen, all the minor league teams right now have professional development licenses that are supposed to guarantee them affiliation through 2030. So I would like to believe that at least through 2030, we're going to have four levels, low A, high A, double A, triple A of minor league baseball. I would like to think that longer term thinking was the impetus behind the pitch clock. The the shift, maybe sorta. I'm I'm kind of ambivalent on the shift restrictions, honestly. But the pitch clock, Eric, you have watched plenty of minor league baseball this year. Please evangelize the pitch clock. Which, which I think deserves all of the evangelism in the world because the crispness of the game is just so much clearer when it's played at the pace that the clock demands it is. Yeah, so it is remarkable. Some of the games I've been to with pitch clocks have been high-scoring games that are still over in two and a half hours. There is a material difference. I, I think that there's a chance everything could have been solved solely with the pitch clock because it puts such a cardiovascular burden on the pitcher yep. that you can't like yep. re- be reaching in the tank for everything you have, you know, 40 seconds at a time anymore. It requires a certain pace that fundamentally alters the way you have to go about it. And so one of the things that I, that I do dislike about the way things have transpired with the rule changes is that there are so many of them all at once that in the, the testing of a lot of these, these changes, they were not isolated to, 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 like, in my opinion, properly evaluate the effects of any individual change. I am less a fan of the shift ban than the norm. I think it's sort of ironic that, oh, we want, you know, the goal is to reinsert athleticism into our game and defense. And the first players that we think about when it's like, all right, well, who's going to benefit from the, these shift changes are guys like Joey Gallo, you know, like that seems <laughs> counterintuitive to me. It's like, yeah, we want there to be more singles in defense. Who is this going to help Joey Gallo? Like what, what are we doing? So I think <laughs> you just mentioned it. Short-sightedness is a character trait of people <laughs> and people run major league baseball. Yeah. And it was always going to take the pitching population changes like that overnight, like almost literally pitch design and the way a pitcher can approach a hitter can change instantaneously. And that's impacted the aesthetic of the game. And it takes the hitting population longer. Like it's so hard to hit a baseball 
it was always going to take mm-hmm. the hitting population longer to adjust for teams to start to select for guys who are immune to the shift as part of scouting and player development. It was always going to take much longer for that to occur. And we just weren't willing to wait for that. We weren't willing to start, you know, from the ground up. Do you do you think it's that we weren't willing to wait for that or there was simply a belief that it was never going to happen and this is preemptive? I think it, it's possible. Like we could have sat here twiddling our thumbs and never developed, you know, a slew of Ichiro's and Placido Polanco's, right? Like, uh-huh. what does the game – like, certainly there are guys over the course of history who we could point to who, you know, are inoculated against the shift because of their style of hitting. And, you know, the short answer is that, like, I don't know. It is impossible to replicate the quality of Major League stuff at any other level. In pro baseball, amateur baseball, it doesn't matter what country you're in, like Munitaka Murakami, Uh I think there's a chance that like if you told me take any of these guys who are 25 and under, you know, in the minors right now or Munitaka Murakami, I would just take him, right? Like he's better than Gunnar Henderson, Munitaka Murakami. He might just be the best prospect on the planet right now. And I still don't know. Seiya Suzuki has had an okay year, you know? You still just don't know if they're going to be able to go from seeing 9092 to CN you know, when it really matters, like 94 plus. There are times I'm at a big league ballpark where you don't see a fastball under 95 all night. And so like, Mm -hmm. it's impossible to replicate it. And so I don't really know. But I can tell you that like, Luis Arias is good. Okay. Okay. So let's, so I agree with you on that, but, but let's, let's remember, we have data going back to 2017 of teams and their ability to to wield the bat well on balls that are in the strike zone and avoid swinging at balls that are out of the strike zone. And in this era where strikeouts are as outlandish as they are, not strike out. There is one team in that time that among the top, I think it's 20 seasons of lowest strikeout rate, they're there every year. And what team is that, Eric? I'd guess it's either Cleveland or Houston. That's correct. It's Houston. And if you look at the top five seasons in that time, the top season is 2017 Houston, 17.3%. After that, Cleveland this season at 18.2%. 2019 Astros at 18.2%. 2017 Indians then at 18.5%. 2018 Indians at 189 Houston and Cleveland are two consistently excellent organizations. So it's not like this is new. How long, and I don't think this is a rhetorical question, by the way, how long, once we know something works, do we wait to see if it can be replicated, or more than that, if clubs are willing to replicate it? I think that's the part of this that doesn't go untold necessarily, but isn't appreciated enough the Houston model just hasn't been replicated by teams. Can you name a team that has made contact the focus of its offensive operation? Well, I would say Milwaukee, Minnesota. Those are the two that come to mind. And of course, Milwaukee comes from Houston with Stearns. I don't know, man. Minnesota, Sano, Kirilov. I mean, all I the- will I will wager that Sano was not tendered this offseason. Yes. Boxton? Right, right. And again, like you're talking about players who were there before the current regime was in place. If I'm looking more at trends in talent acquisition on the margins and draft, 
I think I think ba- I think Baltimore is in there, certainly. Boston. I would Boston, yeah. you know, yes. who's the kid from like University of San Diego, Nick, Nick York. Is, but just like who's got a low strikeout rate in college and doesn't really have any other tools? Oh, is it, Nico, is it Nico? Nico Cavadas? No, I mean that's another one. But like you know, Nico is one of those guys who's well rounded offensively and just can't play defense anywhere because he's built like a, right. you know a bowler or a plumber. But you know, like just these little <laughs> contact oriented dudes where we have statistical evidence the david fletchers of the world right yeah who go too yeah. low because they don't really do anything other than put the bat on the ball and then that turns out to be sufficiently meaningful so there are there are certainly a handful of them but i would agree with you there are only so many part of the problem jeff is that there are only so many players who have real bat to ball skills who like that tool fundamentally is elite and it's much harder to measure again because the quality of pitching is not good anywhere other than Major League Baseball. And, and so, yeah. you know, I can measure, I can see on Kenzie Noel take BP, and the way he takes BP at Dodger Stadium during the Futures game is roughly the same as if he's taking it, you know, at Lake County. Right. It's going to make your eyeballs explode out of your head regardless of where he's doing it. That's power. Bat-to-ball skills are only demonstrated over the course of time and against pitching quality X. And so it's a much more difficult thing to base your strategy of acquisition on because it's a much more difficult thing to like be sure of. But is it but isn't this isn't this also an indictment on the youth development system that we have? I run into this with my child who loves to call himself a PO because hitting has has proven relatively elusive for him. But when he does hit, what does he want to hit? He doesn't want to be a contact hitter. Like you just talked about your eyes popping out of your head watching a great power display. I'm sorry, but nobody's watched Luis Arise take batting practice and had their eyes pop out of their head. It's one of those very nuanced things that you have to appreciate. And a lot of the contact hitters who exist, frankly, are contact hitters because they have no other choice. I mean, let's let's look at the the guys in strikeout rate right now who lead big league baseball. At the top of the list is an obvious one. It's Luis Arise. Second, Stephen Kwan. You know, Arise, small guy. Kwan, slight guy. Now, the next one on the list is super interesting. And this just goes, I think this illustrates my point. When I watch Yandy Diaz hit, I say to myself, why doesn't this guy hit more home runs? Like, he hits the ball hard. He makes contact. Why doesn't he lift? Why doesn't he elevate and celebrate? Why doesn't he do all these things that kids are being taught these days are important? That is what gets you paid. That is what gets you scholarships. That is what gets you everything in this industry. The reason that there are not more hitters like these guys is because what they do is not celebrated. What they do is seen as by even people like me who appreciate the Luis Arias of the world, who love them, who want more of them. I ask, why isn't someone doing more while not just looking at what they do and appreciating it for what it is? So it's a cultural issue that we're swimming upstream against then rather than you know, like a player development one. Yeah, I think so. I think by I think by the time that players get into organizations, the habits that exist already are damn near impossible to break. I think one of the other issues, and I guess this is sort of we'll wrap things up here shortly, but like there aren't thirty-two good NFL coaches. 
why is it we expect the the guy who owns the facility in our town knows what he's talking about? <laughs> because uh, and and I can see this having witnessed the youth baseball apparatus firsthand. Now we want to believe that we are sending our children to the best places possible and putting them in the best positions to succeed. And we don't want to acknowledge that maybe where we live or where we've been forced to live by our job doesn't have the sort of thing that we would desire for our kids. I'm extremely thankful that there's an incredible pitching coach in the Kansas City area named Bob Zimmerman who works with my son and who's awesome and who understands movement. Like, I think that's a, a big part of the game these days that you see with big league clubs that they're not emphasizing the swing itself. They're not emphasizing the delivery. They're, they're categorizing it more as movement. How do you move? How efficiently do you move? Right. Are all of your body parts in the right place at the right time? If not, how do we time the movements correctly so you can put yourself in the best position to succeed when you trigger your swing or when you release the ball from the mound. Right. Hip and shoulder separation, quantification, stuff no, like this. Exactly. Yeah. And and all of – listen, I'm glad you said quantification because we can quantify that stuff now. The technology exists for that to happen. Kinetracks. Bringing this bringing this full circle because that's what we as writers tend to do. I think something that is going to have an enormous effect in Latin America, Eric, is the introduction of the technologies down there that have been so prevalent here in the U.S. for a decade. The fact that Rapsodos and Trackmans are popping up all over Latin America right now, and it's not just for the showcases for the 14- and 15-year-old kids. It's that the 12-year-old kids are throwing in front of these and hitting in front of these, and all of a sudden you're going to be able to see growth patterns, and you're going to understand how a player has developed and where his size was at a particular time and how that correlates with exit velocities or fastball velocities. There's going to be a lot more data in Latin America, and the more data there is, as we've learned, the better teams tend to be at combing through it and finding the players who are on a better track. And that, frankly, it's the democratization of data more than the unionization of minor leagues, to me, that is likelier to shrink them. We may have this excuse that's peddled out there that, you know, the minor leagues got shrunk because players were getting paid more and it needed to happen. No, if the minor leagues shrink, it's going to be because clubs believe that they can evaluate talent and pick big leaguers better than they ever have before and that this inefficient system can be more efficient. Jeff, thanks for joining me today. I hope things are going well with Kylie on his honeymoon. You and I tend to, to do stuff while Kylie's away. Did he did he send you the video of his room? Uh, did he? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if he did, you didn't look at it. I mean, I think like, he might have sent. I think he he sent me a few things from from there, but I don't remember seeing a video of his room. I for sure have seen like pictures of his room and stuff. I'm glad that he and Lenny are finally able to go and do their thing. Yes, yes, it's very nice. I mean, it has a plunge pool. I believe Kylie said as as Lenny said to him, "It's not truly a baller room." Unless there's a plunge pool. And and that is words to live by, honestly. Folks can find Jeff's work at ESPN.com. If you haven't read his book, The Arm, it is 
a baseball essential. Is there anything else other than what's going on at the site that you want to plug, Jeff? I may be doing some YouTube stuff in the coming weeks, which uh, should be interesting. And uh, we've got some good stuff. I've got a story that's going to be running next week that I'm so excited about. All I'll say is on Friday, I have a phone call scheduled with The Undertaker. Oh, okay. Interesting. I have no idea where that could possibly be going. Very cryptic, but I promise is that like there are some stories I get really, really <laughs> excited about and sometimes irrationally so. And and if I said I understand the internet having worked on it now since I got to Yahoo in 2006 for, you know, a decade and a half plus, I would be lying. But I'd like to believe this is one that people are going to like to read. Well, thanks for coming on. If I don't see you, are you coming out here at all during the fall? You know, I, I was asked last week, you come in a fall league, and one of my great laments is that between the playoff drive and the postseason itself, I still have never been to the Arizona Fall League. So I don't know if that's uh, going to happen anytime soon, but I would love to get out there at some point because, I don't know, it's not pure baseball like Dominican Winter League. But it's pretty damn high-level baseball, maybe the highest level you're going to see outside the big leagues. And if you are in the Arizona area at all, you should go out there and treat yourself yeah. to it because, man, it's it's fun to see the future stars before they become them. It's baseball ASMR. Yes. All yes. right. Well, if not, then I'll see you at winter meetings, bud. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Eric. Always a pleasure. For our producer, Dylan Higgins, that's been Jeff Passan. I'm Eric Longenhagen. Talk to you again soon, listeners. Hello, I'm Ben Clemens, and I'm joined by new Fangraphs writer, Michael Bauman. Hey, Michael. Hello. You know, the internet is crazy because I have never talked to you before. This is the first time I'm talking to you, but I feel that like That is I... not true. That's not true. Wait, when do I talk my, to you? At my old job at The Ringer, I had a baseball podcast, and I brought you on to talk about Lance Lynn. That's like oh, the only- you That wrote, is true. wrote a stirring thing. I can't believe you don't remember. Okay, well, I was going to say, I was going to have Dylan set up a fight in the octagon- because he told me that he told us right before we started recording that, that Jeff Passan and Eric Longenhagen were getting top billing over us for this show, which I think is nonsense. I'll like I'll meet them in the Thunderdome. I'll snap Longenhagen in half. But now I got to fight you because you didn't remember the the one time we had interacted professionally before I started working here. I, I can't even argue with that. I, I didn't remember it at all. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that it was about Lance Lynn, given that you're involved. No. It wouldn't. And uh, you've pandered to me in uh, the things that you've been writing this week, too. So uh, was, we're just hitting all the highlights. It's true. Speaking of pandering to you, you're a big college baseball fan. Yeah. I feel like that'll be a nice kind of addition to Fangraphs because, look, there's a lot of people at Fangraphs who follow college baseball, but I don't think we've written about it very much. No. And that's something that I've always liked to to have on my plate. You know, Definitely when I was more focused on baseball than I was sort of... But, the end of my my tenure at the ringer but it, like the big thing for me is it starts in, in mid-february and like major league baseball isn't real until memorial day so you've got meaningful baseball when like all the mlb only fans are deluding themselves into thinking spring training is entertaining you know you're watching like actual high level competitive meaningful gonna have an impact on the championship baseball from like 
mid-March, really. You know, that's when the, the conference season really starts getting going. And then you can, you know, see all these guys when they were in college and be insufferable about, you know, having this uh, Pierre Maguire-like knowledge of where everybody played college ball, which is what I've been cultivating for the past decade. I uh, I saw Todd Helton play in college when I was a kid. I, I grew up near Knoxville. And I definitely brought that up for a long time. But I have not really kept up with it. And yeah, I feel like you know where everyone played in college. Well, I covered it for about a year, for about two seasons at, at D1 Baseball um, in the, the mid-2010s. And so this was right – I was living in Ohio at the time. And this was when the Big Ten and the uh, the MVC and even the, the MAC to a certain extent, like they were all really on the rise at the time. So I got to see – like I was in on the ground floor on Jake Cronenworth, for instance. I probably saw him play, I don't know, 15 or 20 times between all the, the Michigan games I went to. And I was like, this guy's good. And no, like nobody's talking about him. And then he turned into, you know, into an all-star. And so like that's – you know, as someone who enjoys being a know-it-all, like having these guys that are like, oh yeah, I saw him in college. Like that's a big appeal for part of the appeal for me. But like that's, I don't know how many people are listening to this and thinking like, oh, I want to be a sports writer when I grow up. But like college baseball is such a fun way to get reps because like it's, you know, there aren't that many credentialed media at most of these games, unless you're at a place like LSU or Mississippi State or Texas. Vandy. You're not dealing with a packed press box like you can watch it up close you can usually get access even if you're like writing you know particularly for writing for like the student newspaper or like you know the local SB Nation blog or something like that and you know it's you're gonna see real players and and uh, it's a lot of fun and it's you know cheap and easy to take the family to it's just I think it's a, a huge untapped resource even though it's I think it's become more popular in the past few years yeah I feel like it has I went to Virginia and they're always good at baseball uh, and never great at major league players or anything like that. But no. it was just not a big deal when I was there, even though it should have been. They, they were good when I was there. Yeah. When were you there? Because there are a couple famous South Carolina-Virginia matchups. that uh, I graduated in 08. Okay. So, yeah, right after the two of us left college, they played, I think it was a 13-inning College World Series semifinal that involved Danny Hulson and Jackie Bradley Jr., Christian Walker, and, you know, who you wrote about this week, and like a, a slew of, of uh, you know, South Carolina got out of multiple bases loaded, nobody out jams late in the game. It's like, to this day, it's the best, it's the best baseball game I've ever seen. And so, yeah, but Virginia, I saw them, it was the, the year they lost to Vanderbilt in the national final. And like, they've had... They had a lot of prospects on that team, but just not, they've had a hard time. That's <laughs> worked out. Yeah. Like, and for a while, they had a very distinctive way of developing pitchers. Like, you'd see a specific kind of windup, like, sort of doesn't translate well to a, a visual medium. But, like, if you're Hulton sort of through like this, Nate Kirby sort of through like this, Brandon Klein to a certain extent, who was up with, I believe, the Orioles recently. And it just, you know, it worked in college and it didn't really work in the pros. So they had this this long run of high profile busts. Then they brought in recently Drew Dickinson, who was the pitching coach at Illinois when I was covering the Big Ten. And he developed a ton of pitchers out there. And, you know, now you're seeing, you know, Griff McGarry's probably the the biggest Virginia pitcher who's like on the cusp of the of the big leagues right now. But, yeah. you know, they're an int- they're a really interesting program because they're successful and they have, you know, they're doing everything that that other good teams from that that region, you know, your NC State's North Carolina, Vanderbilt, that sort of thing. They're doing 
a lot of the things that make those programs into like regular college world series contenders or programs where you get top 15 picks pretty regularly. Right. And it's just, you know, it just it hasn't really come off. Yeah. And yeah. the guys who come out of Virginia, like Chris Taylor was on that, yeah. on that team, you know, it took him forever to turn into the Chris Taylor that became an all-star. So yeah, it's, I would say I still have hope for Adam Hazley, but I don't actually. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Phillies drafted Adam Hazley and I was like, are they going to make him a pitcher? Like, is that's the, <laughs> Yeah, I mean that. I hated that. I hated that draft so much. So anyway, but the thing about college baseball is like you get distinctive, like obvious distinctions from program to program in terms of style of play, in terms of like what they teach the, what they teach players. You know, Major League Baseball doesn't. All thirty teams don't all really look the same, but it's there's a lot less stylistic variety in pros versus college. Yeah, there was like the two or three years where the Astros were the only team really selling out for four seamers, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't last very long, it seems like. Yeah, because, I mean, there's just so much resources poured into R&D at the the big league. Yeah, they also just copy each other to an extreme degree. So you're going to be writing about baseball, you know, all the time again. Yeah, pro baseball, (laughs) contrary to what what we were just talking about. But that's a pretty big change, right? Yeah, so I started, you know, before I came on at the Ringer, I was covering baseball exclusively for Grantland. I wrote a baseball prospectus. I wrote, like I said, for D1 baseball yeah. uh, for a little while. And so, like, that's what I did. And then, you know, for the first few first few years I was at the Ringer, I was, you know, it also helped that I was living in Houston when the Astros were first getting good. So, you know, I was at Minute Maid, you know, for most of the, the 2017 playoff run, for instance. So I was, you know, doing that full-time. And then, you know, I worked, um, or I moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan because of my wife's job. And so, you know, I wasn't going to the ballpark as much and, and, you know, baseball eventually got sort of de-emphasized and I moved yeah. into to other things, you know, writing about TV and formula one and cycling, even the Olympics, stuff like that. And so, you know, I had fun doing that, but like, this is my roots, you know, and it's the thing that, that I feel like I have the most expertise at and you know i missed like really grinding about one thing having that that focus so you know i'm looking yeah, forward I to have been reading your stuff and the kenley jansen article i was just like there's just so many details in here <laughs> <This laughs> yeah i'm being more details the kenley jan i mean i'm i love i love trivia like you know i just i i want to like bombard everybody with information you know and so I actually a part of me finds writing for this audience a little intimidating because I haven't I haven't written for you know such a ba- such a smart baseball focused audience not like the people who read the ringer are dumb but like you know, it was more of a gen generalist uh, yeah they're more like people who follow a lot of things and see baseball and they're like oh I watch right baseball. And they're like oh this is what you know I remember in I think it was 2018 maybe maybe 2017 I did a story on Mike Clevenger's shoes back when everybody was was uh, talking about his cleats and they were controversial. And, you know, that's sort of like the the level that you would expect, you know, like a casual fan to engage with, with right. baseball. And so, I like, mean, writing for diehards, you know, writing for people who know everything, like, it's it's a challenge. And so, you know, I'm coming at, I'm the Kenley Jansen thing's a, a good example. I'm like, what, you know, what can I tell these people that they don't already know? And that, you know, I think that's, that's something I'm learning to, or having to learn how to do all over again. Yeah, I started writing here from like not being a writer at all and just goofing off in my spare time writing at SB Nation. Like well, I had a, a different day job and it was very intimidating. Just like it's a lot easier to write for a Cardinals fan site than for the fan graphs audience. There people yeah. know a lot about baseball. 
I mean, in some respects, I think yes and no, because, you know, I came through, I like, this isn't what my degree was in, but I went to journalism school. I worked at the student newspaper. I worked in in non-sports publications for a few years when I was right out of college. And, but like how I got here was I started writing, writing about the Phillies for a series of blogs, ultimately Crash Burn Alley, the May She Rest in Peace. The site, you know, that's how Long and Hagen and I know each other. We wrote there together like 10 years ago. Yeah, that makes sense. So, and you know, you'll know Corinne Landry who used to work here, you know, yeah, she's, she's one of works for the Phillies now, right? Works for the Phillies. She's one of one of a handful of people who went to went on to uh to work for teams who who came out of that. Like so, you know, it's a lot of really smart people writing there, but when you write about one team, like you're writing for an audience that might watch, you know, 130 Cardinals games or Phillies games a year yeah. and watch like 20 regular season games for the other teams put together. And yeah. so they know the ins and outs of that team and they pay attention to everything the way that like basically nobody outside of the team itself and the beat writers do. And so, you know, you run into, you know, as a national writer, you got to keep your your head on a swivel. And, you know, if you're writing about the Braves closer situation, like there's a lot of stuff that you got to – you know, you got to get right. And, or else, you know, the people who watch the Braves every day are, they're going to be in your mentions, horror of horrors. So, you know, say like, I include a lot of detail, like it's, some of it is just like cover your ass stuff. You know, yeah, I just want to, you know, make sure that I've got the information, but also, you know, you're writing for people who already know a lot and that, that presents some challenges. I think it's also a very, uh, you know, this is just me personally. I, I find that style very enjoyable where it, it's just really jam packed. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. Like, because then every time I'm looking at a line, I'm like, oh, that's neat. Like, I want to learn more about that. And that is just, a, that's a style I really enjoy. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying your stuff so far. I wonder if, if there's some, cause I'm exactly the same way. Like if I, if I get into something, I want to learn everything there is to learn about it. And if I'm writing about something, I want to tell the audience everything there is to know about it. And I wonder if like, there's something about that mindset that draws people to baseball because baseball has more information than any other sport. It has a greater, greater literary corpus than any other sport, at least in in North America. And I remember, you know, being six, seven, eight years old and being the kind of six year old who would use the phrase literary corpus. And, <laughs> you know, and like just getting into baseball was like, you know, having my dad take me to the library every week and, and checking out 10 books every single week to to read about baseball. And, you know, there's just so many numbers and facts and stories and stuff. And, yeah. you know, that's something I've always found really attractive about this sport, even though, you know, I love all sports except for golf. Yeah, I, I feel very similarly, particularly about the golf part. Not not really a sport. <laughs> but no, Well, it's it's not just that it's not a sport. It's evil. Like the resources it takes up, the it's, just what it represents societally. It is very like, on the nose that Saudi Arabia is sponsoring the oh the big, man the big breakaway golf tour now. And not only that, but like a bunch of like you know, Dylan, you can decide whether to take this part out or not. But like <laughs> a lot of very like Republican Americans are signing up like with the people who did nine eleven, basically. And like, oh, you know, we're going to get there's just so much money on the table. We're brothers in capitalism. And that's our <laughs> our greatest ideological bond that ties us together across across political and religious lines. It's, it, you know, capitalism is the the one joining thread for for golf. And it's yeah, that's been a lot of fun to, to follow. Look, man, I used to work at a hedge fund. I get it. And it's not at all related to baseball. It yeah. is not at all related to baseball. I totally agree with you on that. I like you, it sounds like followed a ton of sports growing up, but I also played Stratomatic and read about baseball mm-hmm. just because 
I like numbers and stuff and I like digging in deeper and yeah, like the other sports just don't really offer that to the same way. I really like tennis, for example, and tennis statistics, that that's not a thing. Yeah. And like, the, how, you how know, many the, matches did you win? I played, you know, I obviously played Little League growing up, but you know, my hometown, the biggest sport and the one that I probably spent the most time, most time playing was hockey. And that's probably, you know, still like if you sit me down either in an arena or in a, or in front of a TV, like I'd probably pick watching a hockey game over watching a baseball game, but like they've only had this kind of informational revolution in the past five to 10 years that baseball's had since, you know, like the 19th century. Yeah. And, you know, like I just, you keep looking for stuff and like, yeah, they know how many goals got scored and how many penalty minutes there were and that's it. And like, you know, I just always th- found myself like really loving the game, but but always wanting more information about it. And yeah. it's only only recently that that's become available. Baseball seems like one of the rare sports where you can describe a lot of what happens on the field without too much like depth of information. That's really tough to do in hockey. There's just there's ten skaters out on the ice and they're moving all over the place, and most of the actions don't produce any obvious thing you can put in a box score. That just seems yeah. really hard. Whereas baseball, it's like, who who's batting? Cool. What did he do? Cool. It's so it's so easy to do that because baseball is a game of discrete actions, and yeah. there's like enough time between them to write everything down. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you, hockey, tennis is like this too. Like you can see, like you know, where the the shot that led to a goal came from, or where the you know the the winning backhand was hit, and and what path it took, and where it landed on the opponent's court. But like. That's so there it's it's that information is almost useless without yeah. knowing what happened the seven or eight shots in the rally before that's right. like, you know there's how no, do we get to this point there's no basis they have to go back to at the end of every play exactly it's, so it makes it a lot tougher this is going to be a rough transition because I was trying to think of one for the last 30 seconds or so and couldn't quite get there but I wrote about Christian Walker this week and I did not realize he went to South Carolina where you went but oh yeah I think he's really good, and I'm kind of surprised that he's not getting more press in general. He's going to hit like 35 homers for a not-as-bad-as-you-think team. And I don't know if I've heard anyone in San Francisco mention his name, and I've been to Diamondbacks games this year. He's in a tough situation because even though the Diamondbacks, you know, I think all things considered, they're having a pretty good season. And a lot of that is due to Christian Walker. But even when they're good, they're not a team a lot of people pay attention to which yeah. which hurts for for starters but also like walker's been around forever like he, he, you really know, he debuted in, in 2014 and so and he was never a big prospect like there's this there was at least uh walker was part of a great tradition of south carolina first basemen who were sort of short and wide but just always hit and, you know so like lb dantzler came after him and kyle martin guys like that wait i have, I have a question for you how many yeah. of those two players do you think i know like, Probably not LB Dantzler. Kyle I, Martin was like was a thing. He didn't make the majors, but like he was a. I have uh, heard of Kyle Martin. System. Yeah, LB yeah. Dantzler. That sounds like a made up name from a young adult novel about Southerners. So he he played opposite. He played on South Carolina's infield. Well, he played it at third and transition of, to first. But when he went to first, they moved a shortstop named Joey Pancake over to third <laughs> base to. What? So, yeah, I loved Joey Pancake. Huge arm. Good player. <laughs> Wait, his last name was actually Pancake? Pancake with two Ks. So, like, you know, it wasn't actually the breakfast food. But, but yeah. I mean, like, close enough. 
Yeah, I was, I mean, I was all about this back in, in like 2012, 13, 14, you know, it's Joey Pancake thing. and Joey Pancake and, and Hold Me Closer, LB Dantzler. That was the, you know, <laughs> Jordan Montgomery was on that team. You know, there were guys that, that you would know who, you know, they Wait, went to South the- Carolina are really good at like prospect development relative to their talent level. <sighs> so this was, they didn't used to be. Like when I was getting there, they had a lot of guys who, so the incoming freshman class my year had three infielders who eventually became top 50 picks. Uh, so Justin Smoke, Reese Havens, who got hurt, he, he was a Mets first rounder, got hurt, never came close to making the majors. And uh, James Darnell, who had a cup of coffee with the the Padres for a while. I went to a game freshman year where he made like four, he had like the Dan Ugla 08 all-star game <laughs> at second base. He eventually became a third baseman and then a, then a left fielder, which is what happens when DH. Yeah. Yeah. So they would have a lot of those guys and just, you know, burn out in the super regionals every year and they'd have a, a lot of high picks. And then, you know, they didn't really come to much. Like, I don't know who like, you know, Brian Roberts, you know, was the only like star who came out of South Carolina in the, the decade before I got there. And then in, in 20 from 2010 to 2012, they went on this ridiculous run. They won two national championships and went to the the national final a third year. And some of that was just like Michael Roth, who they they brought in as like a loogie and a, a first baseman, turned into like he had a 104 ERA one year as a as the Friday night starter. Like some of these guys just came out of nowhere. You know, Jackie Bradley was the big star on that team. Whit Merrifield was on that team, but they've but like Merrifield wasn't a big prospect. Like I was shocked he made the majors at all, let alone became a really good player for a while. You know, Walker was sort of the same. He was there's like an archetype of a guy who just murders even high level college pitching and just doesn't really Yeah, you know, college it, equivalent of yeah, yeah, the quad A. He's the quad A guy. And, you know, Walker was was a, an absolute monster in college, but like, you know, he was a fourth round pick and, you know, he sort of floated around with the the Orioles for a while. It's like that feels appropriate. You know, that's about, you know, that's about right for what I thought he was going to be in college. And then a couple years ago, like I actually there was a, a story I reported about halfway and never actually ran about four years ago for the ringer because Walker came out, I want to say 2018 or 2019, came right out of the gate and was just hitting the cover off the ball. It was a lot of, actually, a lot of the stuff that you mentioned in, in your piece right this week that like huge barrel rate, huge hard hit rate, and like the, the results weren't quite there. And so, you yeah. know, I talked to some of his old coaches and, and talked to him. And then by the time I was getting everything together, like he'd cooled off a little bit and we never actually ran the, story but he's been doing this for a couple years now like he had 29 you know i don't know this offhand i've I've got his page up uh but he had 29 homers in 2019 and you know he's got 32 this year and like he's been sort of you know it's not walking a ton he's not hitting for a high average but he's just crushing the ball and he's been doing this for about four years now yeah and it all happened in his late 20s and that you know because he's a college first baseman which is a like the worst kind of prospect anyway yeah, right, right, college first baseman. Nobody expected anything from him, and he's really gone under the radar. This is like his, you know, maybe only his second real full season where he's done this. And he's, you know, what, like 31? So yeah. he would go under the radar. He, there, was a, there was a very good profile of him in The Athletic by Zach Buchanan. And I didn't realize this until I read it, but not only did he sit behind Chris Davis for a while and then sit behind Paul Goldschmidt for a while, but between those two places, he was, uh, so the Orioles waved him. The Braves claimed him in spring training, yeah. and so he was behind Freddie Freeman. Freddie and Freeman. they waved him, and the Reds claimed him, <laughs> and so he was behind Joey Votto, and then they waved him, 
And he's like, finally, I'm getting away from these teams. And the Diamondbacks claimed him and kept him behind Paul Goldschmidt. And I'm sure he was just like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, learn how to play left field. <laughs> like yeah. it's the, uh, you know, which, you know, he did a little bit, but even now he is the least notable first baseman in the NL West, like five of five, which is kind of shocking. I mean, nobody pays attention to the Diamondbacks. Like that's. Yeah. And the other teams, like, like Brandon Belt is, I would say, probably worse than him now. And Eric Hosmer was worse, and Josh Bell won't be there very long. But they just happen to be notable people. And CJ Crone is just hitting a million home runs, so that makes sense. Freddie, yeah. Freddie, Freddie Freeman. It's just it is a combination of it's a tough division to be a pretty good hitter who plays first base. No one pays attention to the Diamondbacks. I was talking to Meg about it, and I said, "Do you remember that they were pretty good in 2019?" And we were like, "Yeah, that felt like a long time ago." But it just wasn't that long ago. The Diamondbacks too, like that entire team. Like there's not. Even the really good players, this is going to sound absolutely insane, but I'm going to say it anyway. Like, even the good players are not good in, like, a in normal, obvious way. Like, it's, you know, you think about, like, Zach Gallon, who just ripped off 40-odd scoreless innings. Yeah. You know, you know he he's been a monster for okay a while, hard. but it's, yeah, it's not the big fastball. It's not the flashy breaking stuff. Like, you know, the start of last season, I wrote about him and Corbin Burns together is, like, mid-round college guys whose stuff just blew up and and like even then like burns was like throwing 98 miles an hour you know that's yeah. like it was obvious and gallon was still like getting by with like mostly finesse but like his you know his breaking stuff it had really taken a leap and, and he turned into you know well he was hurt a lot in 2021 but he yeah you know, this year turned into like an actual like ace type starter i've been very impressed by gallon i mean as a as a cardinals fan i was very sad, you know, as he blew yeah. up after I thought he would blow up when, when they traded him. And he grew up down the road from me. He's oh, wow. uh, he's from yeah. He should have. He went to Catholic school. He would have gone to my high school if he had uh, if he had gone to public school. Him and Devin Smelter, who's with the the Twins. So I gave him crap for that when I interviewed him. That feeling is very enjoyable. The, oh the yeah, feeling of that guy grew up near me. T Higgins went to my high school, and better bet I bring that up every time I'm watching T Higgins play football. I would, yeah, I would too. I mean, baseball wasn't really that big at, at my high school, so I had to like expand to the greater South Jersey region, which you know, talking about Mike Trout a lot, <laughs> big on Mike Trout hereabouts. Yeah, I think Walker's going to be good going forward. I think the Diamondbacks are good going forward. It's kind of strange to say that because you wouldn't think he'd be that good. He hits the ball really hard, but that's that's kind of his one skill. I guess he's the best. Well, it's a good skill to ever. have. Yeah, as it yeah. turns out, it's a <laughs> yeah. really good skill to have. And it's a lot easier to... Oh, he also has really good idea of what to do at the plate. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by that. I had never known that. But if you look at his kind of historical swing rates, he's pretty good at swinging a lot at pitches over the heart of the plate. And he's pretty good at not chasing. And you don't notice it because he misses a lot and still mm-hmm. strikes out a ton. But, you know, he's making good swing decisions. It's just that he swings so hard that when he hits it, it goes a long way. But he also misses a lot. That was a um, a big thing when he was in college. Like he was just a really smart hitter, and this was actually part of the reason I didn't think it would translate to the pros, because you could just tell he was, you know, just thinking like operating one step above the way these SEC pitchers were. And I didn't know if he'd have like the bat speed or the power. Turns out he has plenty of power. So he was a uh, just a really smart hitter. But like he made the all tournament team in the 2011 College World Series. He hit like. 370 something in the college world series with a broken hammate bone and so that's like 
That you know, just like sort impressive. of like a almost like Joey Votto, like adjusted for competition. Like that's yeah. what he was in college. And and now, like, you know, he's just killing the ball. It doesn't shock me at all that that he's such a smart hitter because that's yeah. who he's always been. That's interesting to me because I mean, I didn't really have any context for him. And so I just looked at his numbers and I was like, yeah, just one of those one of those guys who hits the ball a ton and like strikes out a bunch. You know, he's Javi Baez, except a first baseman. And that's just yeah. wildly untrue. He actually has a very good sense of what he's doing. You know, a player he really reminds me of in a kind of a different way is Lars Newtbar, who has the great approach. And again, in college, USC, I know that one. The other USC. Yeah. The other USC. That's true. I was going to drop that on you, but you're ahead of me. Was not a great power guy. And he kind of grew into it at the major league level. Now, he went to driveline and got his power. But the same deal with Walker. I wonder if these approach over power i mean walker is power now but was a pro tour power if those kinds of guys are a new uh not inefficiency that's just ugh, that's a gross way to phrase it but a new thing that teams should look for and try to work with guys on is hey if you're great at approach we'll teach you power it's sort of the the inverse of that thing i was talking about with burns and gallon where they've taken pitchability guys you know Degrom is sort of like this too and just found ways to <laughs> to add a couple miles an hour to their fastball i yeah, wouldn't like, surprise Jake, me if there's you're great what if you threw 100 <laughs> Yeah. What if it was as simple as that? Yeah. Well, on that note, this was very difficult to record. In fact, not simple. This is, I think, our third take, but it was great talking to you for the second time on a podcast, yeah. Michael. My bad. Don't forget. Now, I'll reiterate my invitation to Jeff Passan and Eric Longenhagen to, to meet me in the octagon. Well, I think it would be a tag team match at that point. Yeah. I feel like we'd have the odds in that. They're both kind of skinny guys. They're little. Like, yeah, I think Eric's in better shape. Oh, Eric is like me beating up Eric is contingent on me catching Eric, which is not <laughs> a given even in a, even in a ring. I was going to say that's why we need the octagon. Passon's a little guy, though. Uh, well, Michael, I, I hope this is the first of many. It is great to have you here at Fangraphs. This is a blast. Let's do it again sometime soon. Yeah. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Jeff Passan for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you've checked out the Fangraphs shop and considered some merch or a membership, don't forget to download the Fangraphs app to your smartphone for the next time you're out, about, and watching a game and need some quick baseball analysis at your fingertips. It is, of course, free, just like the Fangraphs newsletter, which is the best way to keep up on all the cool things we have going on. That should do it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.